In northern Norway, there is a city that celebrates first, the first daylight that comes after months of darkness. Living where they do, the sun is uh, not seen, and uh, they go about their daily lives for a long period of time without light. But this group will come out on the highest hill in the town and wait for the first gleam of light, which is nothing but a rim on the horizon. And then they begin to rejoice and say, Behold the sun! Behold the sun! Those of us who live in Michigan know about that. <laughs> when we see the sun, rare it is, we ought to say the same thing. Behold the sun. What is that? You know, the Bible tells us that the Son of Righteousness is coming, and we need to be looking for him. And after the darkness of this world and the difficulty of this existence, our hearts need to be raised heavenward. And when we see him, we should cry, Behold the Son. I'm afraid, though, a lot of us have lost this longing We've lost this excitement, the anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. And that's a sad state for the church to be in. A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you've ever read the writings of Tozer. He was a pastor from the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance Church. He wrote in the 50s and 60s primarily, I guess into the 70s, his articles have been collected into books, and if you ever get a chance to get something from the writings of A.W. Tozer, let me encourage you to get it and read it. In his book, entitled Man, the Dwelling Place of God, he has one chapter entitled The Lost of Apostolic, or not apostolic, but Apocalyptic Expectation. The Loss of Apocalyptic Expectation. The apocalypse means the unveiling, the return of Jesus. Sometimes we talk about eschatology. That's the study of the last things or future prophecy. It all refers to what's going to happen in the end. And it's all centered around the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, Tozer says, after World War II, there was this clear feeling that a new world order was about ready to begin, and it would start with the return of Jesus. That seemed to be the very thing that would be the catalyst for this new world order. And everyone was looking with a unified hope to the coming of Christ. Well, that's when prophecy conferences became popular. And unfortunately, some people took it too far. They abused the teaching. They took it out of its biblical boundaries. They began to make guesses and even dogmatic affirmations that aren't found in the Scripture. They sometimes put together charts, and they would have fights, and they would separate from one another, and they made camps, and what a sad situation it was. And you and I, many of us, have been embarrassed by that. I, for one half. But sometimes we're embarrassed so much so that we go to the other extreme and don't even think about the second coming of Christ and forget that it is a dominant doctrine in Scripture. In the Old Testament, some 17 of the 39 Old Testament books talk about the second coming of Christ. Someone said there are well over 1,700 references in the Old Testament to Christ's return. 
in the New Testament, some 27 books, 23 or four of them, focus to a large degree on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And one out of every 30 verses of the New Testament talks about the return of Christ. You see, we don't have the leisure to forget about the doctrine. We simply don't have the position to ignore it. It is biblical. It is vitally important. Tozer goes on to say, we lack this unifying hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and there are three causes for it, he says, or at least three. Affluence, we're doing too well to be concerned about a better place. Misunderstanding Scripture, eschatological confusion. We simply don't study what the Bible has to say about the teaching, and so we lack belief or understanding about the biblical truth. And we've heard people abuse the Bible when it comes to prophecy, and so we've just remained ignorant brethren. <laughs> and then thirdly, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We've been hoping so long for the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it hasn't happened? And so some of us are beginning to think, maybe it never will happen. Or we believe it will happen, but we don't believe it will happen. We have this mental assent to the doctrine, but the doctrine does not consume us. We've not embraced it with our heart. And so because of this problem, the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is limping along toward one of the greatest events of all history, the return of Jesus. How sad is that? We've lost our hope. We've lost a sense of victory and optimism. We're backing into defeat. And Tozer says, the hope is totally gone. Our certain hope of the personal coming of Jesus Christ has become an early casualty in the war of conflicting prophetic interpretations. So Paul says to all of that, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren any longer. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In our study of the epistle, 1 Thessalonians, we are now coming, or we're in the middle of chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is fairly new in Christ. He had only spent a few weeks there and then had to flee because of persecution. He sent Timothy to see how they were doing, and Timothy came back to Paul in Corinth in the southern part of Greece and said, the church in the northern part in the city of Thessalonica is going great guns. They're a model church. Their faith is strong and growing. They labor out of love, and they endure because of hope. And Paul wrote them 1 Thessalonians and said, I'm so glad you're doing so well. He rehearsed his ministry among them in the first three chapters. But when he gets to chapter 4, his burden now is how can we live so as to please God? And he talked in the first eight verses of how to live and please God according to or in the area of sexual purity. And then he talked about how to live and please God in the area of loving your brothers. And now he's talking about how to live and please God in the area of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in particular, in the loss of loved ones. Look at verse 13. Brothers, 
We do not want you to be ignorant. I think perhaps a better word, an English word, is uninformed. Paul's not getting on their case. He's not blasting them. He's not rebuking them. And sometimes we use that word ignorant in a way that really puts someone down. It's derogatory. You're just ignorant. But Paul is simply saying, you're uninformed. And I want to teach you what is true. You're uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. And because of that, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Wow. Three kinds of hope in the world. There's the blessed hope, there's a false hope, and there's a category called no hope. One grave marker had these words. I was not, I became, I am not, and I care not. How sad is that? I was not, I became, now I am not, and I care not. There's so many people living in this world without hope, or so many people who have attached their hope to a a false teaching that's going to let them down in the end. And Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you live in despair. Paul deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ in every chapter of his two letters to the Thessalonians. We've understood that they had some misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ. If you look at 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, they thought Jesus had already come. In chapter 3, they thought his coming was so soon, they gave up work and didn't have to do anything, and they became idle. Here's a third problem. Some people thought Jesus was going to come so soon they didn't even think about the idea of death, and now their loved ones are dying around them, and they're thinking, what's going to happen? Are they at a disadvantage because they've already died? When Jesus comes back, are they going to be left or forgotten? And their hearts were grieving about Christians who had passed away before Christ returned. And Paul said, let me clear the air with biblical truth. The first thing Paul does, and this is genius, is he says, I want to establish what we believe has already happened. In other words, when you are dealing with some difficult doctrine, when you're dealing with some subjects, biblical theology that may be confusing, it's always best to start on solid ground. Where does Paul start? The gospel. You never outgrow the gospel. You only grow deeper in the gospel. That was Paul's theology. So notice what he says in verse 14. We believe, he's stating a creed, probably a well-known creed. We believe that Jesus died, and we believe that he rose again. And that's where Paul is starting. Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. This is the smallest definition of the gospel that you could use. The death and resurrection of Christ. But there it is. And by the way, this is something that you and I need to live with in light of every day. 
We need to be convinced. We need to know that Jesus died for us, that it was the love of God that sent Christ to the cross. On the cross, he died for the sins of the entire world. He paid the price for your sin and mine so that we would not have to go to eternity in punishment. And every person who turns from their sin and puts their faith and trust in Jesus is born again, will live forever, and never die. And the proof of this is that Jesus, who died for our sin, (laughs) rose again. When he was on the cross, he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And what happened? Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake the Son? Because Jesus became sin for us. He was our sin offering. But then Jesus atoned for the sin of humanity. He said, it is finished, and proof that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son is that Jesus took him up into heaven, rose, Jesus rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And now the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is what we believe. This is our creed, and this is where you start. Now, there is something else that goes along in that creed, and Paul begins to talk about what we believe is going to happen or will soon happen. And he starts out with a summary statement concerning the coming of Christ. This is in verse 14. So we believe, there's that creedal statement again, that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, if you have turned from your sin and you've trusted Jesus, you are placed in Christ. You are baptized into Jesus Christ. When you die, you die in Christ. And when Christ comes back, those who are in Christ must come with Christ. It's just simple theology. And so Paul gives a summary statement in verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, he says. Here's a summary of the events. This is a great teaching technique. The Apostle Paul talks about what we do believe. Now he's going to talk about what what has already happened, what will soon happen. He gives a summary statement, and then he wants to take that summary statement apart. The summary statement comes from the very lips of Christ. We don't know if this is from a historical sermon that Jesus preached but wasn't recorded in our Bibles, or whether this message came to Paul maybe when he was taken up into heaven or maybe on the backside of the Arabian desert. But Paul, the apostles, heard this message from Christ. And now following the very same thing that Paul has already established in the letter, we rejoice that what you heard from us was not the word of man, but as it is indeed in truth, the word of God. You accepted it like that. Now I've got a message. This comes right from the authority of Jesus Christ. And here it is. We tell you, middle of verse 15, that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of Christ, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep in Christ. In other words, there is no advantage to being alive when Jesus comes. If you die in Christ you're going to be gathered with Christ. If you're alive, he'll bring you to be with him. There's no advantage either way. 
That's the point he's trying to establish. Summary statement. But now the Apostle Paul says, okay, let me give you a sequence of those events. And that's what starts in verse 16. And we want to look at this sequence of events with four words. These aren't original to me. Uh, I saw them in one of the commentaries from one of my favorite commentators, John R. W. Stott. I like them because they're alliterated, and preachers always love words that are alliterated, easy to remember. But I, I've seen them in other commentaries, so they're not original to Stott either. But it's just a good way to organize the steps of the coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, no time period is given here. There's no chart here. But there are four clear events. The first one is the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, and it's very emphatic in the original, for the Lord the Lord himself, not someone else, is going to come down from heaven. Jesus comes down, we go up. Jesus comes somewhere in the clouds, is what the Scripture tells us here. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, and he'll come down. There'll be a loud command. There'll be the voice of the archangel, and there'll be the trumpet call of God. This is the return of Christ. Now, by the way, when you study the return of Christ, the emphasis is clearly on the fact, be ready for his coming. It could happen at any time. I'm not convinced, though, that the apostles thought that Jesus would come or that Jesus guaranteed that he would come in their lifetime. It really bugs me when some people talk about the soon return of Christ, that it could happen at any moment, and then they go to the Revelation and say Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, the seven churches of the Revelation are talking about seven historical periods, and Jesus can't come until these periods are through. How can he come at any moment and then have to wait until the seven periods of history are fulfilled? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But what we do find in the Scripture is this. Jesus is not saying, I guarantee you I'll come in your lifetime. He says, I want you to be ready could it could, because it could happen at any time. He gives us no definite timetable. Why are we so infatuated with one? The Lord himself will return. There's a great story of a preacher who uh, was going to speak at a meeting. It was a rather large meeting, and uh, he took a train. This was back in the day when they often traveled by train. So he travels by train, gets off at the train station with his bags, and he's standing there waiting to be picked up. A car comes in front of him. A man rolls down the window and says, Are you Pastor Brown? He says, Yes, I am. Are those your bags? Yes, they are. The man gets out, puts the bags in the car, and takes off without saying another word. And the pastor's left there at the corner a bit dumbfounded. What in the world is going on, he says. I don't understand this. A few moments later, a really nice limo type of a car came up. And the man who got out was the head of the conference, well-known, and he welcomed the pastor, and uh, he said, I want you to get in. And he said, is everything okay? And Pastor Brown said, well, I was standing here, and someone took my bags. I thought he stole my bags. 
And the man who came to pick up the pastor said this. He said, well, that man works for me. I sent him to get your bags, but I came to pick you up myself. You are so important to me, I came to pick you up myself. And I read in these words, the Lord himself is coming for me. It's not because I'm something, but it's because he loves so deeply, and he's coming to take his own. Now, notice it has three sounds here. Did you notice that in verse 16? A loud command. The voice of an archangel, which I'm not exactly sure what that means is, except it must be pretty loud. I'm guessing that if an archangel, and there's only one mentioned in Scripture, Michael, although it's implied that there are others, because they appear to be the most powerful of all angels, I'm guessing he's got a good set of pipes. And so when he cries out, that's pretty loud as well. And then a trumpet sound. What is known most about the trumpet is it is loud. And a trumpet was used to gather people together for festivals or sometimes to announce uh, the arrival of a great dignitary. It was a sound that captured everyone's attention. I hope you won't think me a heretic when I say I believe these three things are probably referring to the same thing. There's a lot of metaphor in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there may be a literal trumpet, or it may be that the voice of the archangel sounds like a trumpet, and whatever it is, it's going to be loud, and you won't miss that sound. That's the point. You say, well, pastor, sometimes I oversleep my alarm in the morning. <laughs> you won't oversleep this one. Will the unsaved hear it? I don't know. If they do, they probably won't understand it. But every believer will hear it. And we need to long for that sound. A mother was putting her daughter to bed with a Bible story, and it was about the second coming of Christ, using 1 Thessalonians. She said, honey, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be a loud sound from heaven, and the trumpet call of God will sound. And she was talking about going to heaven and how beautiful it would be, and put her daughter to bed with these wonderful thoughts of the second coming of Christ. Well, it was Christmas time, and the Salvation Army band was coming down the street. <laughs> and they were playing Christmas carols, and the trumpeter let loose, as Glenn Akers does, on one of the wonderful Christmas songs. And the little girl shot up out of her bed and said, Jesus is coming. She went running down the stairs. Mommy, Jesus is here. He's here. Honey, no, no. Why do you think he's here? I heard the trumpet sound. And Mommy said, oh, that's only the Salvation Army. And put her back to bed and then realized that her little daughter had a greater appreciation for the second coming of Christ than she did. And that the greatest sermon that night was not the one she gave her daughter before she went to bed, but it was the one her daughter gave her about the trumpet sound. Are you anxious for the second coming of Christ? He could come at any time. Are you ready? Are you looking? And do you long for his appearing? The second R is the word resurrection. We notice this in verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. 
Again, I suggest to you, Paul is trying to make this connection that those who are in Christ will never be separated from Christ. And those who have died in Christ rise first. They're at no disadvantage. They won't be forgotten. You say, man, if I'm alive when Christ comes back, I'll get there second. <laughs> it happens in the twinkling of an eye. I don't think that's bad. The point is, it's going to happen so quickly, so instantaneously. You can't get ready unless you're ready. Amen. You can't get ready at the last minute unless you're longing for his appearing. It'll be a resurrection. By the way, I think it's important as you study Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 to remember that this is a resurrection, not a reconstruction. Right. You say, but the body, the old body in the grave has decayed, right? Yeah, it has. And some people have been burned at the stake and others lost at the sea. How is the Lord going to bring all of this back in the resurrection? Well, first of all, if God wants to do that, I don't have a problem with God doing miracles. Uh, that, that always bothers me when the higher critics will go to the Bible and say, this can't be true because this is impossible. <laughs> what is impossible with man Impossible with man is easy for God. But I don't think that's actually what's happening here. This isn't reconstruction. I think what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is so insightful. The old body is put into the ground, into the grave, like a seed. The seed breaks down and gives life to the flower. What comes up out of the ground is not the exact same thing that went into the ground, but there is continuity between the two. So the old body is the seed, and the new resurrected body is the flower. Amen. And I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know exactly the, uh, the kind of body that we will have, except that it will be glorified. Amen. It will be perfect. And I don't know how to match perfect with recognizable. I think we'll be recognizable. <laughs> but because we're not perfect right now, how can we be recognizable when we're perfect? I mean, how can ugly turn into something that looks good later on? I don't know. But what I do know is that we will have a body that's perfect. That's the resurrection. And the Old Testament talked about the resurrection in the book of Job, if a man dies, can he live again? The psalmist David said in Psalm uh, 16, yes, in your presence is fullness of joy. And Daniel said, there is coming a time of resurrection. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. The very thing that John says in John 5, a resurrection of just unto life and the resurrection of some to damnation. This is the first resurrection. Then we have the word rapture. The word rapture. We use it because, not because it's a biblical term necessarily, but because it begins with the letter R. Actually, it, the word rapture comes from the Latin Vulgate, and it is a translation of the word in verse 17, caught up. To be raptured, it means to be seized, to be taken by force, to be taken instantaneously. And verse 17 says, After the dead in Christ rise, then we who are still alive and remain will be raptured. 
will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, it doesn't say anything about timing, except this is the first thing that happens when Jesus comes. He takes his own to be with him. He seizes what belongs to him and takes it to himself. I don't know if that implies a conflict or not, but if it does, Jesus wins and gathers his own to be with him in the air. It's as though we're meeting a famous dignitary. In fact, the Greek word meet in verse 17 has that idea of rolling out the red carpet for some state dinner when a dignitary is coming from another country and the White House wants to put on its best show. And so when we meet the Lord in the air, it's going to be something very similar. We'll be captured with Christ. It will happen so quickly. It doesn't have to surprise us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's coming like a thief in the night to the rest of the world, but we don't even have to be surprised if we're ready and looking every day. But we don't know when it's going to happen. Alive we go to meet the Lord in the air. And then one final word, the word reunion. For the Scripture tells us we are going to meet together with the dead in Christ who rise first. Together we will be with the Lord in the air, and forever we will be with the Lord. Amen. Isn't that great? How long? Forever. The point Paul is trying to make is once in Christ, you're never separated from Christ. Even death cannot separate us from Christ. That's Romans 8. And so we're all gathered together in the clouds. The clouds probably refer to the glory of God like it did in the Old Testament. It might refer to the angels, but it's going to be this grand reception in heaven of all believers with their Savior. Now, that's a grand reunion. I hesitate to use the word reunion because if I said, just think of a family reunion, some of you would say, oh, man, family reunion. I hate those things. I've got one coming up this summer. I'm already planning to be sick. You know, you don't want <laughs> to gather together with those people. You want to avoid it. But think of someone you deeply love who is separated from you. Maybe separated from you by distance or separated from you by death. Some of you have lost loved ones in this last year. Maybe it's been a couple years, and the pain is still there. There's a wound in your soul that nothing seems to help. Time, maybe, but the wound is raw. And you've got tears, and you've got questions about those who've died in Christ, and why is this happening? And your heart is hurting. You're bereaved. And here's the message of God to your soul. Here's the word of God to your heart. Men have been looking for the answer to the mystery of death for centuries. Here's the word of God. Jesus is coming back, and all the dead in Christ are going to reunite with all the living in Christ, and forever we'll be with him, and it will be a glorious reunion. So what do we do with all of this? What's the purpose? Let me give you 
two, just quickly. The first is holiness. This is 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that's exactly who we are. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, comfort one another with these... Whoops, I got, got ahead of myself. Therefore, the one who has this hope in him purifies himself. That's 1 John 3.3. 3. The one who has this hope about Christ returning lives a pure and holy life. Amen. Secondly, look at verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. Amen. That's why I like to call this the comforting message of the coming of Christ. The message about the coming of Christ in 2 Peter that we studied recently, not too comforting. Everything burns up. The lost are judged. But this is comforting because it goes at the believer. Amen. Comfort, encourage one another with these words. In other words, build up a hope about the return of Christ. Gallup said in 1987 that 62% of Americans believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't get it. Or maybe they believe up here, but they don't believe here. Amen. There's a vast difference between believing a doctrine and letting the teaching of Scripture grab hold of your heart and change the way you live. Chuck Swindoll gives a story of a guy he used to work with years ago in a machine shop. This guy named George had the dirtiest job in the whole shop, sweeping up the shavings. His clothes would be just filled with the filth of the job. One Friday, it was about 10 minutes before quitting time, and Chuck Swindoll looked at George and said, George, are you ready to go home? He said, I'm ready to go home. He said, but you're so filthy. Your clothes are all dirty. George said, watch this. And he unzipped his coveralls and took off his outward clothing and had the neatest, cleanest clothes on the inside. And then he said this, said something to Chuck Swindoll that Chuck never forgot. He said, I stay ready to keep from getting ready. I stay ready to keep from getting ready. What do, you, what do you mean by that, George? Well, there's no sense in waiting to the last moment and then hurrying to get ready. There's no sense in saying Jesus is coming again, but I'll wait until I hear the trumpet sound, and then I'll put my affairs in order. I'll wait until the signs converge, and I know that we must be in the last week of Daniel's 70th week or the 69th week, and Jesus is coming again. I'll wait until all of that happens. No. Stay ready to keep from getting ready. Amen. Walk with Christ every day in faithfulness and obedience to his word. And when he comes, you will be ready. And you can shout with all of your heart, Behold the Son. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you will seal this message to our hearts and cause us, Lord, to embrace your truth in such a way that our lives will be transformed. It's not enough to say we believe the doctrine. Even to know what the doctrine teaches, the doctrine must 
have us. It must consume us. We must every day look forward to your second coming. Lord, help us to be ready, to live ready. In Jesus' name, amen.